Lord, we just give you the glory this morning. We thank you for your presence is with us, and we just want to continue to sit with a keen awareness that to you belongs all the honor, to you belongs all the glory, and we lay it all down at your feet. We lay our life at your feet. We lay our expectations at your feet. We lay our desires, our longings, our cravings at your feet. And we know that you are the one who completely satisfies our soul. And so, Lord, we're grateful this morning for your presence. We pray that you will be magnified in all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week it dipped down to 35 below at our place. Sounds like it got a lot colder at some of your places around town. But I had an experience, kind of one of those epiphanies, I guess, of sorts, when I was filling my bird feeder this week. (laughs) We keep a bag of bird feed in a large plastic storage container on the deck. And as I opened up that storage box to get some sunflower seeds to put in the bird feeder, I saw all of our summer water sport gear in this container. I saw life preservers, I saw the inflatables, I saw the water shoes, I even saw uh, the clothespins for the clothesline, uh, and, and it just struck me with such contrast, right, that uh, it, it seemed impossible to be able to imagine that it could ever get warm enough again to swim in that lake or dry out any laundry. Will springtime ever come? And it's hard when we exist in one reality and we're immersed into it, it's hard to comprehend the possibility of a different reality, isn't it? So we have to remember that winter's reality is not the only reality. And uh, we have this built-in rhythm where we know spring is coming, so we've got a heads up on that, and we're looking forward to that. And that's why we're buying garden seeds. That's why we're ordering honeybees. It's why we're planning out the orchard and all of your summer goals and dreams. But seasons change, don't they? And summer is coming. And the one happy thought, deeply theological thought that I want to help shape our hope for tomorrow is that resurrection is built into God's creation. That our world is always moving towards renewal and resurrection. The Apostle Paul wrote about this in his epistle to the Romans, and he said that God's divine power and Godhead is clearly visible in the world of nature in his creative design in creation so that nobody, he says, because of what we see around us in creation, all these evidences of God's glory, he said, no one therefore lacks evidence for faith. Evidence for faith is just stamped on God's creation. So winter is just a prelude to new life that's coming, new beginnings, new creation. Everything is in, in, in creation is embedded with God's divine nature and the DNA of God's nature is everlasting life. 
The DNA of God's nature is resurrection, newness, renewal. And he stamps that on everything that he does and makes. And he's put it in you and I, and it's put it in his church, which is called in scripture the body of Christ. The body of Christ carries the DNA of Christ, which is resurrection and life. You're dismissed. <laughs> That's good enough just to take home right there and chew on. That's the meal for the day. But change is inevitable. But for people who put their faith in God, we are not without hope. We know everything is moving towards the day of the Lord, which will be the day of resurrection for us. So Paul said, we're people of hope. We don't grieve like those who have no hope. When there's a necessary ending in life, we don't grieve as if there's no hope because we know that the world is stamped with the DNA of God, which is everlasting life. This past week, one of our uh, dear church ladies, Lois Epperson, was in the hospital and had back surgery. And I sent her a text, a little message that said, Uh, Just as the chill of winter is a prelude to the warmth of spring, so is the pain of surgery a prelude to the healing of recovery. Likewise, necessary endings are a prelude to new beginnings. (laughs) He whistled the first service on that, so that's it. I was waiting for the whistle. (laughs) Last Sunday, our lead pastor, Jonathan Walker, presented several new directions where God is leading our church at our campuses around the Matsu Valley, uh, at uh, Palmer, at Wasilla, here at Willow. And uh, in order to navigate into these new directions and new beginnings, we have to have correct expectations. We can't plan for springtime if we're expecting it'll always be winter. Right? We can't bring a past reality into the new reality. Otherwise, um, it won't work. Another image that God used is trying to put new wine in old wineskins because the wineskins will, will burst with the new wine. And, uh, and it's true. As we move forward into God's future, we have to accept the new expectations of the new things that God is doing. But before I say anything more about the specific changes or details that's happening at the Church on the Rock this year, I'll talk about that in just a few minutes. I want to address four expectations that each one of us can bring to the church. And these are uh, four thoughts that were born through our 21 days of prayer and fasting that I'm excited to share with you. Because before we can move into this new season of change, we need to address expectations. Unity is built around shared vision. So I want to clarify four expectations so that we will share the same vision for the church. Because differing expectations is a setup for disappointment, right? And that happens in all relationships, marriage or any relationship, even relationships within the church. But there's a reason why some churches are healthy and some are not. Uh, There's a reason why some grow and others do not. Uh, It has a lot to do with 
shared expectations and vision and core values and belief systems. But I want to address four expectations that if we don't share these together, uh, it will create a ceiling on our ministry capacity and even on our growth and maturity as people, as individuals. The first one is the belief that a pastor is hired to do the work of the ministry. And in order to correct that misconception, uh, we need to clarify the perspective by understanding that the Bible talks about distributed ministry, distributed ministry. And here's the key verse that teaches the job description of the offices that God has put in the church. And he's listed those in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 to 12. He said, now these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church. And these are often referred to as the office gifts. There's the office of apostles, apostleship, which is like a church planter. There's the prophets, which is those who declare the truth of God and have a word of, word of God for the moment. Uh, there's the evangelists and there's pastors and teachers. And their responsibility, Paul said, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. So that means that ministry must be distributed to everyone because everyone is called to follow Christ. And the job of uh, these offices in the church is to equip leaders, to empower and equip people for ministry. That means it's not the pastor's job to take the ministry away from the people. And that means it's not our job to find things for the pastor to do. If God is depositing a vision for some ministry in your heart, something that he's showing you that needs to be done, um, then why do you think he's giving it to you and not the pastor or not someone else. <laughs> if, if a compassion is for a situation or a person is being deposited in your heart and you just your heart's beating with compassion about something or someone, uh, then why do you think the pastor is the only one who is qualified to give away the compassion of Christ? We all are qualified and, and, and the Holy Spirit is within each one of us to give away the compassion of the love of Christ. So why do you think it is that so many of us think that we aren't qualified or that we aren't called? God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies those he calls. <laughs> is that up there? You guys whistle. So this is, this is, oh yeah, this is our new vision coming into the year when the pastor says something really good, you whistle, right? Oh no, it's going to, you mean that's going to happen? All right, well, bring it on. That would cheer my heart, right? Oh, I must look good this morning, right? The point is that ministry, according to the New Testament, is to be distributed, uh, to God's people, not monopolized, not clutched by professional clergy. Uh, there's more ministries than one person can do. And, uh, and we, sh we should uh, not just release 
our responsibility to the pastor. In uh, my church that I pastored in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, I named our church board the LET board. And LET was an acronym? Acronym for Leadership Empowerment Team, kind of taken off from uh, what Moses said when the children of Israel were uh, leaving Egypt and he told Pharaoh, let my people go. And that it was a reminder to our church board that the responsibility of the board was to find ways to equip and empower the laity or the church body to be released into the community to do ministry in the name of Jesus, not to monopolize it and to hold it in one concentrated center. I remember a time in pastoring in Eagle River that there was a member of our church who was sick, going to have surgery early one morning at Providence. And so I went down there, drove all the way from Eagle River to Anchorage. It seemed so long in those days. <laughs> I remember I, I dreaded the drive from Eagle River to Anchorage. It seemed like such a long drive. Anyway, I, I got up early in the morning to get to the hospital. And I was amazed when I got there, there was like half a dozen to, or to t- 10 or so p- people from my church that was there ahead of me gathered around this person who was going to have surgery. And when I walked up, um, I, I was just amazed by it, like thinking, why do I need to be here? And they were just, just welcomed me. And they said, uh, oh, pastor, we're so glad, so happy that you're here. And I says, why? And they said, because we've been waiting to pray over so-and-so. And I says, well, my prayers have no more pull with the Lord than your prayers. Oh, yes, they do, pastor. It's your prayers that get a hold of God, not our prayers. They actually said that. <laughs> And it's like an example or an illustration of where our, how our minds can go wrong if we think that we think of this job of a pastor as some professionalized clergy, right? And we need to um, just get rid of the, those kind of expectations and realize that we are all members together in the body of Christ and God has gifted us with different gifts to be utilized all for serving Christ. And the role of leadership is just a a servant role in order to equip a responsibility to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And the ministry of the church is meant to be distributed to all God's people, not monopolized or professionalized. One of the problems in America, I believe, is with a professionalized clergy. The second expectation that we need to clarify and, and, and move into sharing this vision together is the belief that ministry, this is a wrong belief, of course, I think an incorrect belief, that ministry must be done at a central location and the notion that the church is a building. The church is not a building. Uh, the church is, in the true meaning of the word church, we talk about going to church. I'm going to drive to church, you know, or where is your church? And and I understand what we mean by that, but the true meaning of church is the gathering of God's people 
into community. Church is people, according to the New Testament. The New Testament church met in homes where hospitality was given, where relationships were deepened. And the original ministry model in the New Testament was originally decentralized. And that's why the gospel spread. The philosophy was not to build a church building in the center of town. The philosophy was every home a ministry uh, every home was to be a ministry center on the street where that home was located. And so ministry was not only distributed to the people, but scattered around the community. And there's one pattern that is clearly evident in the New Testament church, and that is the scattering of the church in the world. God is always scattering his people for the sake of mission of taking the gospel around the world. That's why you read in the beginning of so many of the New Testament letters, such as the book of James begins, James 1.1, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. They were literally physically scattered, but the scattering had a theological gospel purpose for sending the gospel around to the nations. And Peter's first epistle begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles or the sojourners, those who were dispersed, who were scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia, and Bithynia. The point is, is that we are called to scatter ourselves into the community. We are to take the gospel into the natural relationships of our circle of friends, our family, our neighbors. Matter of fact, in the New Testament, the, the word for family is called oikos, just like the yogurt we get at the store. The, the oikos yogurt means home or family. And it, it means more in the Greek than just a biological family of a husband and wife and four kids. It, a person's oikos included their relatives, their friends, their neighbors, their work associates, even me, even maybe their cat and their dog, their chickens, their goats, and their honeybees. I don't know. But it was broader than uh, my wife and I and, and our kids. And one of the core values that we share together with Church on the Rock is that we make disciples in the context of small groups. And so I really think feel it on my heart, maybe this more than anything else that has arisen out of our, my 21 days of prayer and fasting, that, that this next year I want to put a concentration and an emphasis on establishing small groups through our church, life groups, home groups, cell groups, whatever you want to call them. Think about it this way. What was, if the ministry of Jesus was so important, so significant, for the transformation of the world, then how did he do it? What was his plan? What was his design? What was the pattern that we can follow? Well, the very first thing that Jesus did in order to accomplish this grand scheme was to gather 12 men, fishermen, tax collectors, uh, an unruly sort of guys together to say, will you do life with me? Well, let's do life together. Will you be my disciples? I'll train you. I'll mentor you. Follow me 
and I'll teach you how to live for Christ in our world. And he formed a life group. He formed a small group, if you want to put it that way. Showing, therefore, I believe, a, the genius of a model. I mean, he didn't sweat the, the stuff. He didn't build a cathedral. He didn't establish a university. He, he just gathered 12 men and said, let's hang out together for three years. And that's how it began. So there's power in small group relationships for learning, for growing, for maturing, for f- discovering uh, the, the glory of Christ together as we walk together. So this building that we're in this morning is a beautiful log building, but it's way too small to contain the vision of discipleship that God wants to see happen in this community. We need to think beyond the building. We need to have a bigger vision than what can happen in this little building. We need to see small groups of people meeting in homes all around this community. Matter of fact, we need to even go beyond that to say that your place of employment is a place of your calling for ministry. It's a place of ministry for you. See, if we enlarge our vision of what ministry is beyond professionalized clergy or a concentrated ministry within a building, we see that all of life is sacred when we're living it for Jesus. Following Jesus is making all of life sacred. It's not a division of sacred things happen within this building and everything else is secular. No, everything becomes sacred when we're serving Jesus. And so he scatters us to be the presence of Jesus in the world where we live. And here's another point I want to say before I move on, and that is that the church grows bigger as we get smaller. We build deeper relationships if we decentralize ministry from thinking of it as happening only within a single building to being spread out and scattered, the wider body of Christ spreading out across Willow community, building relationships, deepening relationships. I mean, right now, what's happening right now in this room is, uh, what would we call it, a, a, a monotone or a... A monologue, not a monotone, it's probably a bit of a monotone, but a monologue. You're just sitting there passively and listening. There's no relationship, really engagement. You, you might hear my stories, you might learn about me or my family or my life and situations, and you learn about what I'm thinking about, and, and certainly there's an element of that, and that's biblical. That's the, the teaching ministry of the pastor in equipping the saints. That's part of it, but there's so much more intended by the Lord for our needs to get met in interpersonal relationships. And how can that happen unless we have a vision for life groups or small groups or home groups, that kind of thing? So just want to put an emphasis and and shape an expectation for that, a ministry beyond these four church walls. The third one is the belief that the church exists to meet my needs or to be a vendor of religious goods and services. The word church is the Greek word ecclesia or ecclesia, depends on how you want to pronounce it, and it means called out or sent out. The New Testament viewed spiritual maturity as being called out from 
the world or called out from a self-centered way of living and called into the mission of Jesus Christ. The distinguishing mark of the church then is discipleship. The church is called out to follow Christ, which is what discipleship is about. People who form a lifestyle of following in the steps of Jesus. And we are saved in order to serve, not to be served. If we're disciples of Christ, we're saved to follow him. And he leads us into places of ministry to show the compassion of God, the grace of God, the love of God to a hurting, broken world. So discipleship is essentially deployment. It's not entitlement. It's not sitting and soaking. The church exists for the mission of God just as fire exists for burning. The church does not exist to be a vendor of religious goods and services either. The church does not exist just to be another Rotary Club or a Kiwanis Club in the community. The church is not a civic organization. It is more than that. Some people bring civic club expectations into the church, but the church exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ. It's like Jesus speaking to the woman at the well when they're talking about drawing water and needing water to drink to satisfy the, the, the flesh, the body. He told the woman at Sychar, he said, I have water to give you that will cause you to never thirst again, meaning there's a deeper hurt and need uh, in our hearts, there's a, a soul level thing. There's a spiritual capacity that we have that can be only met, only answered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so who is going to give that message, that wonderful good news to our world unless it's the church? You know, we, we exist for something so much more than just what civic organizations do. And if we fail in doing that, then who's going to do it? That's what Jesus meant in his final words at the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28. He says, go and make disciples of all men and teach them to do everything that I've commanded you. I love what John Wesley said about why the early Methodists organized their ministry into small groups that were called cell groups. He said, we organized to beat the devil. So the church exists to bring spiritual transformation and release and freedom and deliverance in people's lives, to set us free to follow Christ and live for the purpose for which we were created. And uh, we are to flesh out the good news by applying the gospel to our life. I love these verses. I've always enjoyed the message here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2, where he said, We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is thanking the Thessalonian Christians for three things. They're, and this is how I normally thought of it for many years. He's thanking them for their faith, for their love, and for their hope. And, and yes, he is, 
But there's something else there that I was missing and I've highlighted them. It's their work that was produced by faith. In other words, faith was producing, they were applying faith to the way that they lived and it was causing them to do things that were distinguishably Christ-like. Does that make sense? So faith had an effect in the way that they lived. Their work produced by faith, more than that even, or going beyond that, their labor that was prompted by love. So love was prompting them to go places to show the compassion of Christ, to do things, and your endurance that was inspired by hope. So those all are referring to the application of the gospel to the way that we live, which is what discipleship is is about. It's teaching one another, helping one another know how to deal with the heartaches, the setbacks, the difficulties of life, and apply the gospel to those situations, how to be a follower of Jesus in the way that we live. And so the fourth expectation that needs to be clarified is the belief that the church must be aligned around a single human personality. The church is not to be aligned around any human personality. The church is unified around our common devotion to Jesus Christ. Whistle? It's a good, yeah, good, good time to whistle. <laughs> All right. I was prepared. Okay. Oh, settle down. That was good, but not that good. <laughs> Actually, it was very good. Okay. In Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, I'm, I was teaching on the, uh, the letter to the Thessalonians last Monday night in our School of Ministry class, and I was struck by this thought. It just hit me in such a profound way that in one of the distinguishing things about this letter, his first letter to the church of Thessalonica, was more than any other letter that he wrote, it is full of thanksgiving. He just goes on and on. There's three times in the letter he says, I just want to thank you for this. I just want to thank you for this. I thank God for you for this reason. It's just profuse with words of praise and thanksgiving. And it's all based on reports that had come to him, news that had arrived from the church about how the people were growing spiritually, about their maturity despite the hardships that they had to deal with in the persecution that they were facing in town. And what's amazing to me about all of this maturing of the church, this brand new young church plant, in Thessalonica. What's amazing about it is the book of Acts says that Paul was only in Thessalonica for a few weeks before persecution drove him out of town. It actually says he preached there for three Sabbaths. Now scholars debate whether that means he was actually there for only three weeks or was he there for a longer period of time. But regardless, we know he wasn't there Uh, near as long as Josh has been here in Willow or I've been here in Willow, which is precisely the point. He wasn't there for very long at all. Matter of fact, he, he had to leave town because of persecution, but he left Timothy and Silas there. And so they were there a little bit longer. We know they weren't even there very long because they moved on to Berea and to some other ministries. 
So the point was is that these original founders of the church who planted the church in Thessalonica weren't there for very long, yet still the church grew and matured very deeply in the Lord, meaning that the church was not personality-driven. Whistle? The, the people matured quickly because their faith was focused on Jesus Christ. Isn't that good? That is profound. That is good. And one of the sins also that Paul talked about to the Corinthian church was the opposite. It was cronyism. It was showing partiality. It was showing clickishness. The church had become divided over this sin of personality-driven favoritism. It was at risk because the ministry was polarized around personalities. And so Paul had to address this, and he says in 1 Corinthians 1.11, right at the beginning of his letter, for some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels. So catch this. Their personality-driven perspective on ministry was producing quarrels. Well, duh, wouldn't it, you know? (laughs) It does. Uh, And he says, uh, some of you are saying, I am a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. Has Christ been divided into factions? So here's the point. If we can't receive the ministry of Christ through someone then it means I'm not viewing that person through the eyes and through the lens of Jesus Christ. We should be able to see Christ in everyone that we are shoulder to shoulder walking with in the body of Christ. It means I'm not looking for evidences for the love of God and the goodness of God in the lives of others if I can't receive ministry from them. If I'm polarizing my faith around a certain human personality, that it means I've taken my eyes off of Jesus Christ. If I'm putting my hope in someone other than Christ, then I'm setting myself up for a huge disappointment. This is dangerous. This is what has caused so many professional clergy to fail because of uh, us idolizing leadership and polarizing it around certain personalities. It's why even I believe the early Methodist church would not allow a minister to even stay in town longer than one year or two years. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, For we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Our hope is in Christ and none other. In other words, Christ works through jars of clay. And you and I are all a bunch of crack pots, right? Keep our devotion centered on the treasure that is in the crack pot, not focus on the crack pot. We're all jars of clay. The point is, is let's focus on Christ. He's the treasure in each one of us so that I can look at you and you and you and you and see the glory of Christ in you, see the calling of God in your life, see the beauty of how he's gifted you and shaped you and wired you so completely different from me and see Jesus in that. That's how we are to view one another. Our hope is in him. 
So it's good to clarify these four expectations because perspectives shape how we see reality. For example, I noticed last night how quickly our pile, our wood pile is going down, down, down. I mean, I've been filling the box every day with wood and I've been burning my wood and the pile's going down. I told Frankie last night, it says, boy, we only have a few weeks left and there'll be no wood left on our deck. I mean, I have more wood, but it's under a mountain of snow, and I don't want to have to go out and start that pile. But it struck me, I can either grieve the decline of that wood pile or see that as a sign to celebrate the arrival of spring is right around the corner. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go after the belief that springtime is, and that, that my uh, wood pile is declining because spring is right around the corner. Amen. See, expectations and perspectives determine our reality that we see. And it also causes, it's the reason why some churches are healthy and other churches are not. It's whether or not we gather together in unity around the shared belief system or shared expectations. So these are the four things I believe that are important to recognize and share together and to get right. One is that ministry must be distributed A pastor who leads like Christ is constantly giving ministry away. Christ made disciples and he distributed gifts to each one of us for employment or deployment in the body of Christ. Ministry must be decentralized. The location of ministry is as broad and as wide as the place where God scatters his people into the community. The church exists to make disciples of Christ. We are called out of a life of self-centeredness and sent out to live on purpose for the mission of Christ. And then fourth, the church is held together, not by a certain personality and our attraction to a human personality, but by our devotion and attraction to Jesus Christ, the one that we both love together. So if we get these four things wrong, we will not be in alignment with one another or, I believe, in alignment with Christ. So I want to move then next to the vision that Pastor Jonathan shared and introduced to us last week and just recap some of the things that he pointed out where God was leading us to last week. He mentioned that change is coming this year, and these are all what's exciting to us and it's just like there's a, an air of excitement when we get together as, as staff, as when we see that God is at work. And all of these changes are positive changes. They're good things that God is doing. Uh, they're not reaction to calamity or issue or crisis. But it's God leading and us forward into a, a new reality of renewal and resurrection. The first one is is there's a change in central leadership where J- Pastor Jonathan is going to be handing off more of his responsibilities to Pastor Jonathan Garland. Uh, Jonathan Walker's handing it off to Garland. There's a change coming at our Palmer Church uh, on, in their leadership where the pastor, Chris and Lori Miller, are handing their ministry off to Josh and Audra O'Donnell. We're going to give Josh and Audra a chance to uh, speak in a, in a moment, but that's a big change that's coming not only to Palmer, but 
to Willow. And there's a change coming to Wasilla, where Pastor Jonathan Walker, who's currently not only our lead pastor over all of our campuses, but he's the campus pastor at Wasilla as well. He's going to be stepping down from that role and handing that off to Paul Sliwa. And then finally, there's a change coming here to our Willow leadership, where Frankie and I will be handing ministry off to John and Lexi Aho. So these are big changes, and you see that on the timeline, which brings up the question, when will officially these handoffs take place? Well, uh, Central is not there, but that's happening right now in the month of February. Then Palmer, the final handoff will be in the month of May. Uh, Wasilla's final handoff will be in September, and Willow's final handoff will be a year from now, or 11 months from now, in December of this year. But So let me explain how this, we see this handoff as a process of time and a process of handing it off. And, and I think the, the term handoff is a really good term because it reminds me of when I was in high school, I used to enjoy running the relay races, right? And so a, a good handoff in a relay race takes place in what is called an exchange zone. It doesn't happen all at once. There's this exchange zone of, that is supposed to be 20 meters long. I don't know, I just had this image of me, the old guy, running so fast. Like, yeah, some illustrations just break down, but go with me, right? <laughs> I'm not running very fast, but I'm trying hard. Uh, matter of fact, my friends in high school always made fun of me because they said when they watched me run, it was like my little legs were just going like this, but these long, lanky guys are just loping beside me, you know, and I'm just going like this. Anyway, so there's this ex exchange zone that's 20 meters long, but even more interesting than that, there's even a 10-meter acceleration zone where the new runner who's at a dead stop has to get a running start, right, to gain momentum to catch up to the old guy <laughs> that's running. And so it's a chance for him to gain speed and to, and to get into that exchange zone so that the baton is not dropped and they're, they're running parallel to one another. So the handoff... Uh, here at Willow, and the handoff at Palmer with Josh and Audra as well will be a process of time that leads up to the final handoff. And we haven't completely worked out all the details of the, of the exact week or, or even the exact responsibilities that will be handed off. We're, 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 uh, what I love about what's happening right now in sharing this information is we're sharing it with you right at the beginning, early on in the process, not at the tail end. And so we're still working out some of these details. But Jonathan Ajo will be joining me first in a probably a, a what may be called a lay minister capacity where he's, he has to finish up teaching his school year until May up in Talkeetna. And so we will 
be working together there, and uh, and John will be learning from Josh for a period of time as well, and Josh will be handing some things off to John, and it's going to be slow. And even after December, we at Church on the Rock will still be coming alongside John to support he and Lexi and help him in ministry. Uh, we'll be sharing uh, the, the, the pulpit together, uh, both Pastor Chris from Palmer and myself will probably be now doing a preaching rotation at all four of the campuses. So it's not like you'll never see us again. And Frankie and I don't even know, uh, you know, when in the final handoff in December, whether that means we'll never drive to Willow ever again. We probably will. You're our church family. We love you guys. But on a morning like today, when it was snowing like it was, <laughs> oh my! But the final handoff will take place in December at the end of the year. Does that make sense? So, what is? Some have asked, "What are is Frankie and I going to do next?" Well, we're, we're not sure. We, we we know that we still have ministry in our heart. We still have a calling on our life, and that will always be the the case until we go on to, to, to see Jesus. But we do recognize something happening. And I think I'll share this in order to help you even with even decisions that you need to make and how to discern God's will. There seems to be a lifting of something inside of us, a lifting of energy. We see less energy than we ever have had before, less capacity to lead. And in Parallel with that, alongside with that, there's this releasing of a sense of leadership responsibility that what I want to call is God, we recognize God lifting the sense of ought. We ought to do this, we, you know, in our heart. When, when God is calling you to something, there's this oughtness, this I ought to do, this responsibility, this heaviness, this burden of recognizing a responsibility or a calling. And, and there's a lifting of that. And... Parallel with that, there's this recognition that God is moving that and putting it on other people, particularly younger people. <laughs> Some guys with tattoos, you know, these guys that can re- re- relate to new, the new generation. And, and, and it's important for us to be willing to let go and not clench and hold on. And I think it's maturity to be, to be able to recognize our limits of capacity and energy and to let go and to see God raising up a new generation of leaders and knowing that it's time to let go and hand off to them. And I, I'm so excited. I, I think I mentioned this at the close of last Sunday service almost jealous that I don't get to run with all these young bucks. Uh, so it's Cody up at Telkeetna, John here at Willow, and Josh over in Palmer, and, and Paul Sliwa at Willow. Man, you guys are, huh? What did I what Wasilla, yeah. You guys are going to have so much fun. You're going to need a mentor really bad. So that's... <laughs> Uh, yeah, there we go. But every generation, remember this, you guys, every generation stands on the shoulders of those who have gone before, right? If I can see any further down the road, it's because I stand on the shoulders of that tall man, Dale Selector, right? Every generation must move over to make room for the next new generation. 
And necessary endings are just the prelude to new beginnings. It's not the end. Every generation leads us closer to the day of the Lord. And God, there's, there's a reason why. The, the church is called in the New Testament the body of Christ. The body of Christ carries the DNA of Christ, which is the resurrection life, the eternal life of Jesus Christ. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Amen? Or it will not contain the onward thrust and movement of the church. So that because the church has the DNA of Christ, it is the body of Christ full of resurrection, renewal, and life. And God's going to grow, continue to grow his church as we share the vision together.